Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to this CrocCast on Indonesian pluralities. My name is Scott Appleby. I'm the Maryland Keough Dean of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm pleased to moderate this discussion with my friend and colleague, Atalia Omer, Professor of Religion, Conflict, and Peace Studies at Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. With Ibrahim Musa, Atalia, and I co-direct the Contending Modernities Research Initiative at the Kroc Institute. Today, we are delighted to talk to contributors to one of the major projects in Contending Modernities. The theme is this, the practice of citizenship and belonging is never as simple as state law and legal standing. Indeed, in multi-ethnic, multi-religious societies, contending public discourses on the politics and practices of belonging may shape substantive citizenship and norms of coexistence as much, if not more, than formal policy. As such, the ways in which we recognize and stratify our fellow citizens profoundly shapes the exercise of democracy and the prospects for positive peace. Today on the CrocCast, we will approach these questions through the lens of the book, Indonesian Pluralities, Islam, Citizenship, and Democracy, edited by Robert Hefner and Zainal Begir. The book is the product of a multi-year research project to explore the public contentions and normative traditions that have shaped the values and practices of social recognition and coexistence in different areas of Indonesia. It is one of several research projects, as I mentioned, within the Authority, Community, and Identity in Indonesia Working Group, sponsored by the Contending Modernities Initiative and these works are being published by the University of Notre Dame Press. So Atalia and I are pleased to be joined today by the editors of the book, Robert Hefner and Zane Begir, and authors Erica Larson and Ali Matul Kiptia. First, we'd like to ask Bob and Zane to address some framing questions about the volume and our topic. Professor Hefner is Professor of Anthropology and World Affairs at the Party School of Global Affairs at Boston University. And Zane is Director of the Indonesian Consortium for Religious Studies and a lecturer at the Center for Religious and Cross-Cultural Studies at the University Gajah Mada in Yogyakarta. The lead researchers on this project on pluralist coexistence in contemporary Indonesia, Bob and Zane bring together decades of scholarship on the confluence of religion and pluralism. So gentlemen, I would like to ask you two questions to get our conversation started. First, around the world, we are seeing religious identity and religious discourses become the predominant terms of public conversation on the norms of society and citizenship, often subsuming ethnic and other registers. So the first question is, what implications did your research have for the reconciliation of public religiosity on the one hand and inclusive practices of recognition on the other? And then let's step back for a moment and ask about Indonesia itself. Why should readers, scholars, journalists, and others look to Indonesia for lessons with regard to these matters of multicultural citizenship, reconciliation after conflict, youth and religious difference, religion and changing gender norms? So those are two big questions, and I'm going to ask you to take them on right now. Zane, would you like to begin? Yes, um, thank you, um, Scott. Yeah, I may start with the um, situation of Indonesia, which, as you mentioned, it um, contains lessons also to understand um, the situation um, related to religious diversity and democracy in other parts of um, the world as well. Well, to take um, to start with um, Indonesia, so the the subtitle of our book it has Islam, citizenship, and democracy. How do we understand um, these um, three terms in Indonesia? Well, um, especially in the 
mass media, I mean, when um, people, but I would also like to say even scholars um, try to describe Indonesia, sometimes they describe Indonesia as um, Muslim democracy or even the largest Muslim democracy. This is an example of moderate Islam. Sometimes um, this is put in contrast with um, the Middle Eastern um, Islam, for example. But also, on the other hand, there are also criticisms of um, the way things are going in Indonesia. People pointing, um, also uh, mentioning about the failure of Muslim democracy, when there are things like um, conflicts between different um, religious groups or um, the situation a few years ago during the gubernatorial election um, in Jakarta, which was um, um, in the headlines. So people then say, well, this is this is an example, not of a Muslim democracy, but the failure of Muslim democracy. So I see this as, as um, two ways, a very simplistic ways to describe um, what is Indonesia. And the book, I think, the main contributions of the book um, is trying to describe um, the situation in um, less simplistic ways, in a more um, showing the complex um, situation, um, the the nuanced dynamics of um, different factors in Indonesia. And um, of course, um, Indonesia um, has been diverse religiously, ethnically, linguistically throughout all its history. But the issue is um, surely it's not only about um, pluralism. It's not only about the existence of pluralism, that there are um, different normativities, but the, that these different normativities, um, they are um, contesting with each other. And so there is a competition. And um, there is also attempts by each group to scale up um, their normatives, the, their normativities. Um, some of them, they are successful. Others, they are less successful. So what we try to describe is to describe is a situation, an ongoing situation in which, well, I would say, um, which shows Indonesia as, as an unfinished project. So it's not easy to call Indonesia as, as um, well, this is a Muslim democracy or this is um, an example of moderate Islam, etc., so the the kind of um, pluralism we call in in our um, book in Bob's chapter as well as my chapters as agonistic um, pluralism, a situation in which there is a a deep diversity, um, different groups um, they compete with each other. Sometimes one group wins, at other times they lose. So it's still, I mean, it's um, ongoing. And the again, the, the most important thing, I think, and this is what we try to show in, in different chapters, is that when we try to see a situation um, in a country like Indonesia, we look at normativities. We also look at how people try to scale up these normativities. What strategies do they do they use? What avenues? Um, how do they try to institutionalize it? How do they try to influence others? to influence the state. And it's not only people participate in this um, dynamics, not only through elections, of course, but in through different means, in street politics, in the constitutional court, in, in, in different ways. So I think in this sense, we see a similar situation in many parts of the world now, in which um, people are grappling with the situations of the existence of different um, normativities, whether it's new or it's it's been long um, in their history, but it's there now in, in well, I, I would not claim in um, all countries, but we see it, people are struggling with this issue. So we try to um, show in the case of Indonesia, and I think um, in Bob's chapter, and Bob, of course, um, can, can speak about this himself um, later, that similar dynamics are also taking place in different parts of the of the world. Thank you very much. Agonistic pluralism, we want to keep a thread in the conversation about how this unfolds within the context of modernity, which is our, our big, big word in our Contending Modernities Initiative. But let me ask Bob to, to take the conversation up at this point. 
Uh, great. Well, I think I'll just build on and go around a little bit uh, what Pat Zainal described, because I think he underscored the main points. But let me just back up a bit with one kind of a contextual comment, which is that we went into the field and we initiated this project, Pat Zainal and I, and then the other members of the team, after in 2015, 2016, 2017, which was well in the aftermath of the failure of the uh, of the Arab uprisings and the beginning of what some people today call the uh, the Arab winter. And what we mean by that is that across uh, the Muslim, particularly Arab Middle East, there were a series, as we all know, of bold uprisings where citizens were were calling for a more egalitarian practice of citizenship and more inclusive democratic politics. And in all Arab majority countries, with the exception of Tunisia, these uprisings failed. Uh, so that uh, we had uh, a lot of naysayers from around the world on the question of Islam and democracy. Of course, Sam Huntington back in the 1990s had raised this issue. But shifting now to Indonesia, what's so interesting about Indonesia is, yes, it did begin a transition, a return to democracy, electoral democracy in 1988, 1998, 1999. But the transition was rife with ethno-religious, communal contention, and contention, I might add, over questions of gender and gender equality, something that also figured in the Arab uprisings, but which is sometimes overlooked. So what's interesting about Indonesia for me, and that was, again, part of the background of the project, is that in many ways, by many measures, Indonesia, when compared in particular to Arab majority countries, which we always must remember, Arabs comprise just 20% of the Muslim world's population. But in any case, uh, by comparison with uh, Arab majority countries, many people would have regarded Indonesia at the beginning of its transition as the least likely to succeed. Indonesia is sometimes called a moderate Majority moderate Muslim country, but its history is actually very complicated. It had one of the largest mass killings of the 20th centuries in 1965-66, when some 500,000 people, alleged communists, uh, were killed. So Indonesia has a very troubled history. It was under the authoritarian rule of President Suharto from 1966 to 1998, May 1998. Again, looking at this legacy, it's uh, many people hard-nosed, hard-analyzing uh, political scientists in particular, forecast that Indonesia would fail. And during the first years of the transition, particularly from about 1999 to 2002, there was such an explosion of both ethno-religious conflict, but also, as Bu Alim, Alimatu will remind us, contention over gender issues that uh, many people said, see, Indonesia is going to fail. Here then, 15 years later, 16 years later, after the transition began, we begin our study, confident that yes, Indonesia has enormous, faces enormous challenges, but it has succeeded in effecting a transition to democracy. And more interestingly, I, I actually steer clear of the term moderate Muslims because of all the kind of securitization connotations of that terminology and its association, quite frankly, with Samuel Huntington. But what was more interesting about Indonesia is that, yes, it has a political system which, like much of the global South, is burdened with patronage and clientelism. But at the same time, and this is what we sought, and I'll end here, what we sought to emphasize, it is a place of enormous hope. It has uh, a Muslim educational sector and a Muslim intelligentsia that I would say is among the most sophisticated and democratic minded in the world. It has the largest Muslim welfare associations and the largest Muslim women's organizations in the world, not just by a little bit, but by far. And as Buali is herself an example and a witness the Muslim women's organization in Indonesia, notwithstanding the fact that it faces it, has to face down a conservative backlash. It is nonetheless, it has nonetheless persevered and uh, created circumstances in which the discussions and debates and initiatives 
with regard to Muslim women in particular and uh, Indonesian women in general are again, both very hopeful, progressive, and I think uh, sources, well, sources of hope. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. You've both set the frame for us very well. Atalia, would you like to jump in here? Yeah, before we turn to hear directly from Alim and Erika, I would like to stay for a moment with you, Bob and Zain, to gain a deeper understanding of how the particular layered research in Indonesia uh, can help us understand broader questions about um, religion and modernity, and specifically the question pertaining to religion and, and pluralism. So uh, some of the terms and concepts that are framing the book have already been mentioned, but I want to give us an opportunity to go more, more methodically uh, through some of the basic terms, especially as you, Bob, articulate those in your uh, introductory chapter, which offers both um, uh, a framing for the whole the whole engagement, the whole um, the entire book, but also some theoretical findings that you derive from from the case studies uh, that each chapter illuminates. So, especially, I would like to invite you to talk about what do you mean by agonistic plurality, the concept of focal the focal incidents or dramas of contention, uh, the notion of scaling up normativities. What does it mean? And public reasoning. And specifically think about those terms uh, to the degree that they can travel from Indonesia to the broader theoretical conversations about religion and uh, pluralism and pluralistic context. Thank you. So maybe we'll start with you, Bob, and if Zain, you can uh, add. Thank you, Atalia. Those are uh, those are dauntingly important questions, and I'll do my best in a limited frame and with limited capacity to respond to them. A central concern of the book is how people look at each other, how they recognize each other, uh, how they engage each other as citizens. But citizenship in this book is understood not just as a relationship, and in fact, not primarily as a relationship with the state, and not certainly primarily as a status or political status or identity that involves the extension of the same bundle of equal rights to everybody. Citizenship in the West, as we know, and we have been very dramatically reminded in recent years, has never been like that. Citizenship is differentiated, it's graded. There are some people who are more in, some people who are on the margins, some people who are excluded. So we were interested in citizenship as a process of so active social recognition and looking at the variety of the term we use, borrowing from some work in public ethical theory, uh, Charles Taylor, but also in the anthropology and sociology of ethics. The term we looked used is we, we were interested in the plurality of registers whereby people engage their fellow citizens. Are those registers, do they draw primarily on religious values? As some people, when talking in particular about the Muslim world, imply, they say, oh, well, they assume that there's a kind of single generative discourse that emanates from an entity known as Islam and that it's everywhere the same. That's, I think, a very, very erroneous understanding of Muslim ethics and Muslim civilizational history. But other people would say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's nationalism and or it's ethnicity. Uh, the basic point in the premise of the book is that in Indonesia, as in all societies, there's a plurality of registers whereby citizens, people among themselves recognize and engage each other. They're gendered, they're ethnicized, they're religionized. And a question that emerges in the shaping of any nation and of any political community, even at a subnational level, is what, a, what among that plurality of registers, that agonistic or competitive plurality of registers, which one is to prevail in the public sphere? And much of what, back to public, your point, very good point uh, to raise, Atali, about public reasoning, in public life in general, there are political processes of exchange, discussion, also contention in material and political sense that, if you will, take place over just which among that plurality of ethical registers or rubrics is most suitable for you and me interacting in this small community, you and me operating in this province, you and me operating within the framework of the nation state. So we were interested in the forces that, if you wish, 
promote the ascendance of one ethical register. And of course, behind this question was our more egalitarian, inclusive ethical values, be they from Islam, be they from Indonesian traditions of citizenship, be they from aspects of gender culture, and an often overlooked kind of contributor to people's self-understanding and recognition of others. But we were interested in the social, political contentions and supports that lead to the ascendance of alternately more inclusive and accommodating and egalitarian, as opposed to more exclusive registers of recognition. Great. Sang, do you want to add your reflections? Yeah, I, I think we see citizenship is it's not static. Um, it's a struggle and it's always in the process of being um, made. So, but I would also like to say that while citizenship may be informal, well, it may be formal, it may be informal, and it may be differentiated, but there are also attempts to improve um, the situation. Like um, one of the case studies in my um, chapter, um, the story of the the struggle of the indigenous um, religious communities, um, which went to the constitutional court and they won. Well, the, the victory um, in the constitutional court, I see it as a victory toward um, better formal citizenship. But um, before that and after that, actually, I mean, actually, the, the story is not only in the court and it doesn't end in the court, but the process to go in that direction, I mean, for these communities to go to the constitutional court, it contains, well, collaborations um, with um, civil societies, with the local um, governments as well. Um, so this is one aspect of um, collaborations between society, well, one so social groups and others, and also across state um, society, which I think um, is important. And it, it's also um, defining. And also, the victory um, in the constitutional court, it also doesn't mean that the story ends there, because even after being granted recognition um, by the constitutional court, they still have to continue the struggle to make sure that um, on the ground, this victory translates into operational, operationally um, everyday life. So yes, um, citizenship um, may be informal, differentiated, et cetera, but these aspirations for um, equal um, citizenship is there and it's being um, found um, in different spheres, including formally um, through the court. So I don't, I don't want to people to have the, the impressions that um, we are going only to put an emphasis on the non-formal citizenship. Excellent. I really appreciate the point about the citizenship being a practice and ongoing and elastic and dynamic and not, not static understanding interpretation of citizen. I think this is a very profound reflection and, and, and a kind of theoretical framing. Uh, so we'll hear next from Erika Larson. Erika is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Asian Research Institute of the National University of Singapore. Dr. Larson has worked on civic education in both Muslim, Christian, and general, quote-unquote, state schools in Indonesia, and has followed trends in Indonesian youth culture. Her research within this project focused on majority Protestant North Sulawesi in northern Indonesia, and she writes about scaling plural coexistence in the city of Manado. Dr. Larson, what implications do your findings have for the future of religious pluralism in Manado? How do educational institutions help young people negotiate different identity markers and asymmetrical practices of recognition? Thank you so much for these really important questions. I'm going to speak mostly from the perspective of my case study in this project uh, in the city of Manado in the province of North Sulawesi, um, a region which is honestly often seen as peripheral. So I'd just like to make a, few, a couple of preliminary comments as to why it offers an important perspective as a majority Protestant province, as you mentioned, uh, but also one which remained peaceful in the late 1990s and early 2000s during uh, the process of democratization and decentralization in Indonesia, 
particularly as several nearby provinces, such as Maluku, um, North Maluku, and Central Sulawesi uh, did experience collective violence. Um, and also, as we see these broader trends in Indonesia, like increasing influence of conservative Islam, um, overlapping and reinforcing with, with some trends of, of Islamic populism, this case of Manado helps to relate these broader trends to, to questions about citizenship and plurality that this overall project sought to investigate. And so one of the main findings from this research in this majority Protestant city of Indonesia really relates to this question about the possibilities for accommodation of, of public religiosity and upholding this inclusive uh, multicultural citizenship. And the debates in the public sphere of Manado are actually grappling with this very question. And so I'd like to outline uh, the sort of main tension that I found in these debates in the public sphere, um, which I would describe as between a kind of aspirational coexistence a strong discourse of commitment to religious harmony that's actually required for some form of legitimacy in the public sphere in Manado and pride in having been named the most tolerant city in Indonesia by the Satara Institute for Democracy and Peace, also based on this historical legacy of, of avoiding conflict at the turn of the century and having a strong infrastructure for interreligious communication through different organizations. Um, so this kind of aspirational coexistence is, is really in tension or the limits of this kind of aspirational coexistence become clear when the status of Christians as a majority in the province with a strong influence in the public sphere uh, was questioned. And also when the rights of Christians in other areas of Indonesia, particularly where they are a minority, were perceived as, as threatened. Um, and so in these cases, there's often a leveraging of the status of Christians as a local majority by groups which signal agreement with religious harmony in discourse, even as they might pursue practical ends that are challenging these, these dominant ethical norms. So there's really these, these two competing ethical frames, one which really aims to be an exemplar for the rest of Indonesia, modeling uh, this potential for religious coexistence, but which is also in tension with a kind of Protestant majoritarianism, um, at times projecting an understanding that um, coexistence is guaranteed by or a simple result of uh, the Christian majority. And so... As you mentioned, um, one of my contributions to the project was a focus on educational institutions as extremely important uh, sites for scaling, right? And also sites where this agonistic plurality also manifests and plays out um, in these educational settings. And so, you know, my approach to this question was through ethnographic research, as you mentioned, at three different high schools in Manado um, and nearby Manado, focusing on religious and civic education classes, but also on, on school policies, extracurricular activities, um, and the many potential sites of scaling and ethical deliberation about religious plurality beyond the, the formal curriculum. And so at this public high school, this public madrasa, and a private Catholic boarding school that claims a, a multicultural approach, it's quite interesting as all schools are, are implementing a national curriculum, um, and I focused on the civic education and religious um, education classes there, but the specific policies and the implementation of the curriculum were actually extremely varied. And I, I can get into the, the, specifics, the specifics of each school, though I don't want to go down to, to too small of a scale, but I'll just mention the, the public high school itself, where you saw these very the very same tension between these two ethical frames about religious coexistence sort of paralleled what was happening in the, in the broader public sphere, where you saw a strong support for, for piety and religiosity in general, um, pride in religious diversity of the students, and this idea that Manajo is a tolerant place, but at the same time in policies um, about the space of the school, how it was used for worship, ideas about dress, you also saw this case of a strong Protestant influence and creating a strong uh, Protestant environment that actually in many ways um, sort of mirrors what's happening in some schools in Java that have implemented a strong Muslim environment in, in public schools. So 
I'll sort of stop there for now, but I'm happy to expand on, on other aspects of the project. Wonderful. Thank you, Erica. I think that you gave us a bit of a taste of what does it mean concretely through the, the specific case of uh, Manado to think through the question, the fra- one of the framing questions with respect to this notion of scaling up normativities, among other key concepts that we uh, have already highlighted. So thank you. And hopefully we'll have time to return to, to ask some um, more specific questions. So our final panelist today is finally uh, Alimatul uh, Kiptia, and Professor Hefner has already generated a lot of, of buzz, so we are very thrilled to finally hear from you. Uh, Dr. Kiptia is a commissioner on Indonesia's National Commission on Violence Against Women and a member of the National Executive for ICEA, a four million strong women's organization with ties to the Muhammadiyah, Indonesia's second largest Muslim mass organization. Dr. Kiptia is an expert on gender debates and legacies, both in Indonesia and the broader, the broader world. Her research within this project looked at gender contention and social recognition in women's organizations in Yogyakarta on the island of Java. Dr. Kiptia, what gender legacies influence practices of belonging and cultural citizenship today, and how are these being reconfigured? Okay, uh, thank you very much. I'm so honored to be part of this group of this uh, research. Yeah, this is very great opportunity for me. Okay, I argue that in Indonesia, culturally, historically, and also ethically, has egalitarian uh, values on gender issues. Although uh, in some discussion right now, there are some group who try to break this egalitarian uh, uh, values among Indonesia, particularly in Yogyakarta, in Japanese um, culture. For example, that in the relationship between husband and wife, the, the term of garwo, meaning the husband or the wife, which is an abbreviation of sigaraning nyowo is half of the soul, implies that women and men have more or less the same importance in the family. And also the second one is relating to the bilateral kinship, which is in Jaffa, a child receives his or, he or her own name with no maternal or paternal family name. And the third one is relating to the present of several queens in Java and in Indonesia archipelago history is often cited as another example relative uh, uh, gender tolerance. Although in some cases there are some popular uh, expression which is like women is wife will go wherever her husband goes to heaven or to hell, for example. And also sometimes there is the name of the wife after getting married is erased yeah, by the culture and they use a husband name, for example. However, this kind of gender inequality in the society understood by organization, women organization differently. For example, I try to uh, choose three contentious gender issues, which is on the leadership and second on polygamy and the third one on LGBT. Uh, so far, it's understood by community that uh, Muslim debate on gender focus not only, yeah, not only on social relation in ordinary life, but also on matter of worship, such as women, as imam for mixed uh, prayer, which is uh, in the prayer, there is men and women. This issue before is unthinkable, untouchable. So I agree with Bob uh, Statham that although it's like there is a backlash yeah, about the democracy, but in terms of women issue, we feel that there is a good news, there is progressive, yeah, although in silent revolution. Yeah. For example, in terms of uh, discussion on female leadership in prayer, in mixed uh, prayer for men and uh, women, for adult men or adult women, in Asia, for example, yeah, the discussion about women imam is, is not, uh, I mean, discussion in Asia is quite acceptable yeah, compared with other two organizations. 
even right now uh, we working on how to legalize in uh, their fatwa that women can be an imam for adult male for example this is something that quite progressive if we compare with other two organization for example for muslimah and u they don't work on organization level but individually yeah some muslimah and u they have progressive interpretation relating to the women imam compare with uh, muslimah hti which is right now we know that hti is banned in indonesia uh, muslimah hti they they don't agree that we, women can be an imam for adult men so it's mean the dynamic of the women imam uh, in this discussion so as that the, the 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 progressive interpretation of some contentious gender issue relating to worship right now in indonesia is wider and also broader uh, dissemination in the society great thank you so much i wonder if we can turn briefly to, back to erica and perhaps you can uh, reflect on to the degree to which or how um, gender also figured into your analysis Yes, thank you. Well, first of all, in terms of my focus on education, gender figured in terms of uh, the fact that in Indonesia, women are often very highly educated and that this is an important social value uh, across Indonesia, but also particularly in Manado, um, where I did my research. And also just in terms of my focus on schools as important sites of deliberation about plurality and citizenship and as sites of scaling right they also represent important institutions for scaling up normativities not only about you know religious difference and coexistence but also in terms of of gender norms and just to to mention briefly uh, while i was doing my research there there was a particularly strong campaign against lgbt groups and individuals and despite this not being a major Uh, part of the curriculum or into the formal curriculum at all this kind of moral panic was certainly perpetuated in in the schools uh, where i did research great uh, alim do you want to um to reflect a bit more um maybe respond to uh, erica's analysis okay if we look at the dynamic uh about the ge- uh, content yes gender issue for example on polygamy issues for example yeah in 1928 aisia they agree on polygamy although the argument relating to the colonialization because the colonial bring monogamy as part of their teaching so to oppose the colonialization they choose polygamy but right now uh, like in 2015 during the the biggest meeting of uh, aisia uh, muktamar in makassar aisia uh, launched a book with title menuju keluarga sakinah tuntunan menuju keluarga sakinah it's mean that a guidance to have a happy family in that book clearly said that aisia muhammadiyah marriage is monogamy so is there is big changing yeah uh, relating to the idea from the opposite to the agree or in term of polygamy from the agree on polygamy and opposite uh, polygamy and also relating to the lgbt because erica also mentioned yeah lgbt is not as worse we thought in indonesia because actually although they don't agree with lgbt but they don't condemn about the lgbt they don't do discrimination so legally they don't agree with same merits but they don't stoning or they don't do harm to the lgbt group so in the middle the the, the position is in the middle so same merits is no but discrimination against lgbt is also no yeah this is i think is quite uh, interesting finding yeah relating to how the muslim community perceive on lgbt yeah very uh, very interesting yes bob go ahead one of the interesting things uh most interesting thing about indonesia and any country is that these more inclusive and egalitarian norms 
rarely apply across the board. They can be kind of strong influences in some spheres, but sort of challenged in others. And we see this rather, rather dramatically with regard to gender and sexuality and issues uh, in, with regard to the difference that Bu'alim very, very nicely described a few moments ago. That is polygamy versus LGBTQ issues. Indonesia is quite striking in the degree to which among Muslim women and to a less dramatic degree statistically, but still a majority of Muslim men do not believe that polygamy is a proper form. It's it's religiously authorized. It's in the Quran, but it is not religious. It is not authorized except under emergency circumstances. Very quickly, one of the most interesting things some years ago in 2006, I think it was, was one of the most famous celebrity televangelist, Muslim televangelist preachers, Aa Gimnastiar, uh, took a second wife. He had always made a point of presenting himself as a kind of pious husband, a good family man, very dedicated to and in love with his wife. When he took the second wife, I was actually in Indonesia when that news broke. And I was visiting uh, Gymnastiar. There was shock and outrage, not least of all, from his many women fans. Disappointment. So that this became, just to go back to a point that you raised earlier, Atalia, this became one of those focal incidents that not merely illustrated, you know, a plurality and an agonistic plurality of values and perspectives on an important, critical public issue. It also became a catalyst for change. It contributed to the constitution and reconstitution. And in this instance, the strengthening of a kind of anti-polygamy argument. The latter, I'll end here, the latter has been much more difficult with regard to LGBTQ issues. Gender equality, women's rights have made huge progress, but for a variety of reasons in both the Christian and Muslim community, much less so in the even smaller Hindu minority. They're about one and a half percent of the population. But in both the Christian and the Muslim community, there has been much greater reluctance to embrace a kind of Western uh, liberal understanding of LGBTQ issues. But as Bu Alim said, the alternative has been to say, OK, we do not we cannot authenticate this religiously, but we must not condemn. We must not take violence, acts of violence against uh, LGBTQ persons. Speaking of uh, questions of gender equality and LGBTQ rights and status in Indonesia, leads me to ask more broadly about the chapter in the book about Hizbut Tahrir and Islamist opposition groups. And those of us who are non-specialists, when we hear about Indonesia's agnostic, um, agonistic pluralities, uh, the focus is often on Islamist uh, groups, uh, and that's the focus. So if, if someone could make uh, general comments on how salient is uh, Islamist opposition, quote unquote, in many of these areas around education, gender equality more generally, how these groups are waxing and waning in in the kind of the hothouse contestation in competition. Do they thrive in this in this context or how do they fare? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean, there are so many diverse groups and groups within groups. So, well, I um, in my uh, first statement, I mentioned that calling Indonesia as a Muslim democracy or a moderate Islam that may be um, misleading because we have this so many um, diverse um, um, groups. So um, just to take, um, well, you, you mentioned about the Islamists, um, whether that's Hizbut Tahrir or other groups, but there are those um, even within um, Nahdatul Ulama, which is, um, um, I mean, usually called as um, moderate Muslim organization. Within that, this big group, there are different um, factions, which you may call, I mean, whatever um, label you want to give, whether that's moderate, progressive, leftist, um, but also conservative or even Islamist. And I think the same with Muhammadiyah. I mean, there are so many um, um, different groups and Bu um, Alim can confirm this because um, she's from the background of Muhammadiyah, but it's always there. And I think that, again, 
points to um, why um, we use the term um, agonistic um, pluralism, because this is this is a really, I mean, deep diversity. It's not only that there are different religions in Indonesia, and um, I should add here that Erika's um, project, I mean, in Manado, um, shows how um, even within Indonesia, there is a Protestant majority areas, and you will find Hindu majority areas, you will find Catholic majority um, um, regions as well. But even within um, each of these groups, there are these different um, subgroups. So the competitions can be um, really, I mean, yeah, very um, strong. So Islamists may be um, everywhere, um, I mean, um, within these different groups, but also you will find, I mean, um, different spectrums of, yeah, I mean, different types of um, um, religious orientations within these groups. And um, I think um, Bu Alim's um, chapter um, shows just that. I mean, um, she compares one of the Islamist um, organizations, um, the Hizbut Tahrir, and then the the Muhammadiyah um, organizations. And um, again, you see many competing um, gender normativities um, um, promoted by these different groups and subgroups. Thank you, Bob. Just a very quick footnote. Uh, this Many people had forecast that when Indonesia returned to a functioning and surprisingly open and robust electoral democracy in 1999, that uh, some variety of Islamist parties, perhaps somewhat more moderate than extreme, would prevail in the national elections that are held every five years. In all of the elections held since 1999, Islamist parties, that which in this instance, let's define them as parties that are committed to the reorganization of the state by basing it either fully or to a much greater degree on a conservative understanding of Islamic Sharia. Islamist parties have not only fared to win a majority, their proportion of the national vote has declined. And those parties, which in 1999 uh, declined, I might add, to about 20% of the vote, exactly unlike what one saw in countries like Egypt and even relatively uh, progressive countries like Tunisia, another successful democracy. So that, that tells us something about Indonesia. And equally importantly, even among the Islamists, there has been a shift away from, if you will, declaring that they're going to transform the foundation of the state by basing it on, again, their understanding of Sharia. Uh, there's been a shift away from that towards uh, what is essentially working within the framework of the Indonesian nation state, avoiding any kind of transnational idiom. Very importantly, however, arguing that citizenship must be differentiated. There must be a kind of Muslim first supremacism. But again, what is striking is that this appeal, even this more modified Islamist appeal, has not won great support in the electoral arena or in the national public. Okay, maybe I can add a little bit. Please. I just want to make sure the Zen argument that the dynamic among the Muslim women group, for example, the one that I said before, the gender issues that untouchable, unthinkable before relating to women imam, for example. In Aisyah Muhammadiyah, they go to the organization through the fatwa council, and then they're more acceptable right now. In NU, it's only individually, not go to the organization. So there are many individual people from the Nahdlatul Ulama and Muslimat, they have progressive idea. But in Muslimah HTI, which is Hizbut Tahrir, they don't agree, yeah. They don't agree about the women imam. But right now, as we know, uh, the women Hizbut Tahrir is banned because the Hizbut Tahrir banned in Indonesia. It's mean right now if if we talk where we are going to go, this is more moderate or more conservative come to Indonesia. I argue that more uh, progressive and moderate come to Indonesia go for the the next future. Uh, because of this uh, reality. And also right now, maybe this is not in the books, but from my observation as a commissioner and national commission uh, uh, violence against women, the bill of preventing sexual violence right now is come to the parliament. 
as we know that before is very controversy, very contentious, but right now it's like there is light. Yeah, there is light in the future that we hope that Indonesia is going to issue uh, the going to issue the the bill of the sex uh, preventing of sexual violence, for example. So, sorry, I'm so optimistic with Indonesia. Thank you. I wanted to go back to you, Bob, regarding that that point about how gender relates to this. Uh, one of the basic uh, framing themes of the um, looking at focal incidents or dramas of contention and or to the degree to which gender is at play in all of those instances. And I would like to invite you to reflect uh, again on how the um, kind of the layered analysis and engagement with the case of, um, with the multiple cases uh, within the Indonesian framework uh, speaks back to theory about uh, gender, religion, citizenship discourses, because it's uh, indeed the case that policing gender in one way or another is often a focal point of uh, that is very generative of conversations with respect to uh, greater inclusivity or greater exclusivity with respect to citizenship and where religion or appeals to values including secular secular values, come to the foreground. So I just would like to invite you to reflect on, again, from the depth of the case to that broader question, to that broader discourse about gender, religion, and citizenship within a pluralistic framework. Uh, that's a great question, Natalia. One of the, as you underscore, one of the most striking things, both about nationalism, nation-making, and citizenship in all parts of the world is that it's deeply gendered definitions of gender, and in particular, not to associate gender just with women, but a women's status loom large in the shaping of virtually all national traditions, not just those in the Muslim-majority world or Indonesia. And that has been the case, but that has been the case here in Indonesia. I think what's interesting, if I just... Abu Alim has talked about the historical antecedents for a more uh, inclusive and egalitarian practice of gender and gendered citizenship in Indonesia. I would just jump ahead to today and again note an issue related to the one that I made with regard to, the point that I made with regard to elections. Islamist parties, those that again take what they claim is a, their underst uh, an understanding of Sharia, and it's actually a very inaccurate characterization of Sharia, but at any rate, uh, Islamist parties attempted in the post-1999 period, to transform opposition to gender equality and to women's rights and feminism in all the variety. We recognize those are overlapping rather than a single issue. They attempted to turn those women's issues into a critical diacritic, a kind of wedge issue that they would use not merely to push back against gender progressives, particularly in the Muslim community, but to push back against what they regarded as a for an invasion of foreign ideas, democracy, equal citizenship, and of course, women's rights. And again, what is striking, Bu Ali, I think, touched on this very, very nicely. What is striking is that while they made a lot of noise, and here and there, for example, in on LGBT issues, we can say they perhaps have at least consolidated a position. On women's issues more generally, that effort, like their effort in the electoral arena, failed. So their own effort at normative scaling, their effort to scale up, uh, if you will, a certain understanding, a model of gender relations and a model of gendered citizenship, that was their big gamble. And I think many of them today realize it was a mistake. So in this regard, I think Indonesia, again, I very much agree with Buali, Indonesia is a strikingly interesting example of perhaps put it in quotes, but I won't put it in quotes, progressive gender change in the Muslim majority world. Halim, do you want to add anything to that? Thank you very much, uh, Bob, who have uh, also optimistic yeah, idea and also dream toward uh, Indonesian position, status, and also uh, opportunity in the Indonesian uh, archipelago. Maybe one of the indicator what my argument uh, relating to the 
future of Indonesian women in the pandemic era right now, for example, like myself talking about the Indonesian Muslim feminist in 2019 is only 32 times a year. But in 2020 is 118 times. And right now, until the end of May, I already as speaker for 87 times. It means this is promising for the Indonesian Muslim feminists in uh, more acceptable in the society. So it's not only 100%, but multiple, multiple, yeah. Uh, so I think <laughs> my existence as the the idea dissemination on Indonesian Muslim feminists right, right now is more acceptable and more acceptable in the society. So sometimes I become a, a speaker two or three times a day talking about the Indonesian Muslim feminists with different groups. It's mean now, yeah, welcome to Indonesian Muslim feminists. Wonderful. As we come to a conclusion here, I'm going to ask the editors of the book Uh, Zainal Bagheer and Robert Hefner to offer us uh, a summative statement about the project. And I'm going to ask probably the most difficult question that any authors or editors get. I'm going to ask you to offer only one insight, contribution, takeaway from the project rather than the six, seven, eight, or nine that you could easily, but if you were to choose. What what is the insight or the contribution to the conversation about Indonesia that this project leaves us with? And I, if we could begin with Zainal, if you would start. Yeah, well, very difficult question, but I think the most important point I'd like to um, underline is well the path to um, democracy in a religious country like Indonesia. Well, it's I, I would say it's narrow and twisting. Well, probably, of course, not only in Indonesia, but again, I want to avoid simplifications of whether calling Indonesia as the largest Muslim democracy, etc. But um, we should also be surprised if, in the near future, I mean, you see one event taking place or others um, which shows. Some people probably would say this is um, an example of the failure of democracy, for example. But I mean, it's well, probably my word would be: I mean, Indonesia is unfinished. I mean, it's still being shaped, and there are many factors um, shaping it. If Bu Alim um, says that she is optimistic, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, because there may be more and more um, um, possibly. I mean, the future is not guaranteed, but we have um, capital to build a civic pluralist Indonesia, but it's going to be continually tested. And um, at one point we may fail, other points we may succeed, but well, this is it. I mean, yeah, you cannot expect more. Thank you so much. Bob? I think the general lesson of Indonesia is one that speaks to at least what I have always understood going back now, I think more than 10 years, perhaps 12 years of association with Contending Modernities Project, uh, Scott and Natalia. Uh, I think one of the lessons from Indonesia speaks to what was an aspirational truth, not yet fully proven, of the Contending Modernities Project. And that is one thing above all, that religion, and religious ethics can be a powerful positive force for democracy, gender equality, and citizen inclusion. But we, for it to be this, first of all, we have to recognize that religious traditions, religious civilizations, religious values don't work in the way that my friend, I knew him, I collaborated with him once on a project, Sam Huntington imagined religion to work. It doesn't work. Religion is not an ethical tradition locked in time and changeless. It is informed by carryovers. I use this term very specifically because it's from ethical theory, contemporary ethical theory, carryovers from one sphere, imbrications, and not so much contentions, 
Scott, you and I talked about this once, but imbrications and renewals. And what we see in Indonesia, for example, with regard to Muslim gender values is a kind of engagement with an integration with certain ideas of equality and inclusivity that originate both in nationalism and inclusive nationalism, a civic nationalism, and also in a kind of global variety of modern liberalism that I think it's actually best not to call liberalism because it's gone beyond the confines of the West. To me, that's the lesson of Indonesia. This is a country where religion is still in contention. The country is unfinished, but religion has, and religious actors have proved themselves important positive contributors to democratic life and civic citizen and gendered inclusivity. That is a fitting closing statement for a really fascinating conversation that's been very illuminating. We want to thank you all. Ali Motul Kaptia, Erica Larson, Zainal Bagir, Robert Hefner. We appreciate uh, and Natalia. Let's do this again. So thanks. Thanks so much to all of you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.